Well, good morning, Stone Creek. Anybody glad to be in church? Convince me. Let's go. I know I am. Come on. That was incredible. Hey, we are in this series called Be Real. Let's all say that together. Be Real. And just the idea is that we live such filtered and edited lives, especially in the social media culture that we live in, that we kind of uh, live this life towards putting on the be- putting our best foot forward, our best image forward. And sometimes we don't let see- people see the real us. And, you know, sometimes that's just called tact. Um, but other times it actually keeps us from living the life that God has for us. And so they're w- the most popular and downloaded social media app currently is this one called Be Real. And uh, that whole idea behind this app is that you take a, at some point during the day, it's going to notify you along with all your friends, and you're going to take a picture of yourself, take a selfie, but it's also going to take another picture of what you're doing and where you are, and it's going to show that, and it's unedited, and it's unfiltered, and so that people can see who you really are, and it's called Be Real. And so today, what we want to talk about is real friendship, real friendship. Let's say this together, real friendship. And I want to start out just by doing a little church history and kind of tagging on to something that I started last week. And so, uh, by show of hands, how many people have ever heard of the pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer? So we've got a handful of people in the room have heard of Bonhoeffer. Now, Bonhoeffer is a, uh, man, he is a, he is a hero of the faith, right? He's a stallion. Like, he is one of those guys you look at, like, I want to be like that. Now, Bonhoeffer grew up in Germany, and he grew up, and around the age of 13, Bonhoeffer gave his life to Christ. His parents weren't Christians. They were academics. His dad taught in the university. And so even as early as the age of 13, he began to believe that God had a call in his life to be a theologian and a pastor. Now, Bonhoeffer earned his PhD at the age of 21. He was a typical Milton overachiever, right? I mean, he, he had it going on. And so Bonhoeffer uh, comes of age during the time when Hitler was rising to power. Now, now, one of the things that we may have missed during some of our church history and some of our world history is that Hitler actually had influence in what was called the German Evangelical Church. That the German Evangelical Church was strong. They prided themselves on being the moral foundation of the country. Um, they believed that you know, they were the heirs to Martin Luther, the Protestant Reformation. But they began to let Nazism infiltrate the church. And it became, they began to be very nationalistic in the way that they operated. And all of a sudden, it was the government that was first and not God. Hello? Right, that's a problem. Somebody say amen right there. Right, that's a problem when that happens. So Bonhoeffer and his crew came along and they started and were leaders at this underground church called the Confessing Church. So you had the Confessing Church that was trying to get things back and then you had the German Evangelical Church that was trying to promote um, Hitler's agenda. And so Bonhoeffer finds himself studying for a year at Union Seminary in New York City because if you're going to do anything in history, you've got to come to the United States, right? I mean, come on. Um, and so he spends a year here. His friends tell him not to go back and he goes goes back to Germany, and he starts a seminary, kind of an underground seminary. I think we have a picture of Bonhoeffer, um, actually. And then also he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship um, that was part of his time there starting the seminary. And this was the first book that I read when I gave my life to Christ. I would highly recommend it. Um, it's a very easy read. You can read it in, say, oh, a year um, because it was, I'm like, oh, I got into it. Um, and so he also, and then I think we have a picture of some of the guys in his very first seminary class. Um, 
some fine, dapper-looking dudes right there, aren't they? And so this was the very first seminary. Now, now, as he began to adopt the rhythms of Jesus to really follow Scripture, to try to uh, evangelize based on his understanding of who Jesus was, he has some friends that thought he was just going over the top. He has some friends that thought his methods were too extreme. They read some of his sermons. They understood what he was teaching at his seminary. And so one of them comes along, Wilhelm, and says, Dietrich, I really think you're, you're going too far. And so what he does is he, Bonhoeffer puts his friend in a boat, and they row across the, to, across the Odair Sound. I think we have a picture of that. And as, we're, as they're moving across and, and uh, rowing across the river, he's beginning to cast vision for his friend around why he's doing what he's doing around what it looks like to actually follow Jesus, to actually be formed, as we talked about last week, and not to be conformed, but to be formed and transformed on the inside. And, and as they land on the, on the banks and they make their way through a clearing and they see uh, the military of the German regime as they're gaining power, and there's planes flying in and out, there's soldiers marching, and they're learning hand-to-hand combat. And Bonhoeffer has this quote, and he basically says this, what we are doing here, At our seminary, the teaching, the transformation that's happening has to be stronger than that, pointing to the German military. This has to be stronger than that. Now, now Bonhoeffer goes on and gets arrested by the Gestapo. Bonhoeffer ends up in prison for a long period of time. And one month before the war is over, Bonhoeffer is hanged for his faith. He was martyred. But before that happened, Bonhoeffer said these words. He said, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Like the physical presence of other Christians is a source of strength and joy. Incomparable strength and joy in the presence of other believers. Anybody experience that? Anybody experience that level of friendship? Anybody experience that level of relationship with people? You know, you may be here and you're just kind of new to church, new to this church, back to church. I just want to be able today to paint a picture for you of spiritual friendship that's different than what you've heard. Right? It's a source of joy. It's a source of strength. It's a source of value. It's a source of power. And what can tend to happen in our, um, in our culture, the culture that we have of just busyness and transactions, what happens is we can actually shortchange our relationships, for the power that God wants to use in our life. Man, I really believe that for us that there are people in the room that you've gone through life alone or kind of alone, and you've missed out on the potential that God has to write in your life. And as a church, for those of you who call this place home, and if you've been here more than twice, this place is home. Hello, come on. Listen, the way that we're different is the level of friendship that we have. It's the way that we approach people. It's our view of understanding and seeing people the way that God sees them. And our level of intentionality around that. So, so as Paul writes here in, in Romans chapter 12, I just want to walk through some of these phrases. And, and the first thing I want to say is real friends, they create value. Real friends, they create value in our lives. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, the very first phrase says, let love be genuine. Now he goes on to say, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And that first phrase, let love be genuine. Now, now that word that's used there for genuine, Paul is doing a play on words there. 
Like in Roman theater, um, they would, they didn't have, you wouldn't have enough actors and actresses to actually perform every single part in the, in the theater. So what they do is they would have masks that they would wear. So in this scene, you know, player A would wear his mask. And then in the next scene, you know, the same player would wear a different mask because he was or she was a different person. And then in the third scene, the same player would put on a different mask because they were a different actor, different character in the, in the play. You know anybody that lives like that? Just those different masks that we put on? Like, this is actually the word where we get our word hypocrite from. You know what a hypocrite is? Like, some people criticize, like, I don't want to go to church. It's just full of hypocrites. I'm like, no, 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 we're not hypocrites. We're just pathetic sinners. That's all. (laughs) And we're honest about it. I I understand what they're saying because we can't ever live up to this image that other people have. But hypocrite is somebody who's one thing in one arena and another thing in another arena. Like, like I meet people who are like that all the time. And and one of the things that's probably a little unique to my job is, like, I'll meet people for the first time and, you know, they may not know who I am. Maybe I meet them at the gym or at a restaurant or at Target or something. And then after I, maybe in the neighborhood, and then they they find out I'm a pastor and all of a sudden they are mortified that they've said something unpastoral in front of me. Like, my wife meets people around here all the time and they'll be like, how long have you been going to this church? (laughs) And she doesn't tell them who she is. She's a secret shopper. Um, and so she finds out all your pathetic sins and tells me. So, no. <laughs> but we know what it's like <clears throat> to be one person in, run, in, in front of one person and to be another person in another environment. I love the way uh, the, the message translation says these verses. It says, love from the center of who you are. From the center, like deep down. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. So Paul's talking about loving like from the deepest part of who you are. Then he goes on to say to to hate what is evil, to abhor what is evil, to stay away from what is evil. Man, we need to learn what it means um, to see evil in people's life and have or in our life and have people have people actually speak into that. You, You know, we're not loving anybody by letting them continue in a behavior that's destructive. Amen. Right? When we see a friend of ours, someone who's walking a path of destruction, they're in a lifestyle or behavior that's going to end bad for them, and we don't speak up, like that's not love. That's called apathy. That's called the exact opposite of love. And there's so many times when if we would have just had somebody speak up into our lives, if we just had somebody say, hey, that's the wrong way to go, if someone would just say, that's, that's going to lead you to a path and a destination you don't want to go to, it, it could have saved our lives. Man, it could have helped us. Um, and so he says, hate what is evil. Uh, there's a, I'm going to read this proverb. I don't have it on the screen, but Proverbs chapter, um, chapter 6 talks about some things that the Lord hates. And one of the things he talks about, it talks about someone who lies, like when you lie to your friends or to people that you know. But it says this, one who, one who causes division among the brothers. So God hates it when division is caused among people. And if we're not careful, we won't not just call out sin in someone else's life, but we'll also be guilty of actually helping people sin. Have you ever heard of the word gossip? Have you ever gossiped today? <laughs> what, about, what about judgmentalism? You ever judge somebody? Maybe in traffic? <laughs> like, where did they learn to drive? Same place you did. Oh, but you're perfect because you never missed a turn, right? Man, we, we can be judgmental about how people dress or wear or live or drive or think 
where their kids go to school, man, we can be very judgmental because we're in this competing, comparing culture that we live in. Man, and God, God looks at that. He needs somebody, and we need somebody in our lives to call out the things that are bad for us. We need somebody to call out the things that are bad in us. It says, hates evil. But then it says this. It says, he didn't, doesn't just hate evil, but holds on to, to, to what is good, holds fast to what is good, hangs on to, to the things that are good in our lives. Do you have someone in your life that's just an encourager for you? They just breathe life into you. Like if, if, if their number comes up on your phone, you're like, this is from the Lord. Man, you're going to answer it because you know it's going to be good. Do you know what people don't need less of? Encouragement. Everybody could use more encouragement. Now, personally for encouragement, I love to turn on the news on the television, don't you? I mean, there is nowhere you're going to get encouragement. There is nowhere you're going to get it. And we need to be very intentional about it. And if you want the types of friends that are going to last a lifetime, if you want the type of friends that are going to breathe life into you, learn how to encourage. And encourage things specifically. <clears throat> so like John's up here singing, I can go back, John has a great service. And that would be it. He'd be like, why was it great? I don't, I don't, was it really great? Are you just saying that to be nice? And so be very specific when you encourage somebody. Tell them what they did good. T- tell them where they win. Man, and when you do that, man, your life will change. That's what we have to do. We have to hold fast to what is good while we hate what is evil. Now, Paul goes on and he says this. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. With brotherly affection. It's this family term that we have. Have you noticed how you treat family different? And sometimes it's good, maybe. But we, we tend to treat family different. Like you may be in a meeting and your husband texts you or calls you. You're, you're probably going to answer. Because he knows you're in a meeting and you think something's up. Or maybe, what about your kids? Like when your kids call you, if you have kids, or maybe they text you in the middle of a meeting, you're going you're gonna to respond to them a little quicker. Why? Because their family, blood is thicker than what? Water. Blood is thicker than water. Now, I understand that along with family comes a massive amount of dysfunction many times. Like, I know that. And I know some of you experience that. But I think we should realize that family, its relationship is built into our spiritual DNA. We can't can't escape our need for this. If I were to just give you a little more of the backstory of the Bible, you know, in Genesis, we talked a little bit about this last week. It says God created the heaven and the earth, you know, and God was creating things. And on the sixth day, God creates Adam. And God looks at Adam. He's like, you know, you're alone. Let me help you out. And God creates what? He creates animals first. What was he thinking? I have no idea, right? But God creates animals. But then after he creates animals, he tells Adam, listen, you need someone who's like you. You need someone who's the same character, who's written in, uh, in my image. You need someone like you. And God creates Eve as a companion for Adam of equal value, different responsibilities, of equal worth. Why? Because Adam was alone. Adam was alone. It is built into our spiritual DNA that we, are, we, we need relationship. And without relationships, like we are doomed. There's a study, that st- the longest-running study that we currently have. Harvard did a study. It started in 1938. It's called the Happiness Study. And they grabbed uh, 762, I think, 760-some-odd students at Harvard. Uh, JFK was actually in the original study. And they began to track them every year over the course of time. 
And they begin to ask them questions about, you know, how their life was going, life satisfaction, happiness, emotional health, physical health, and all of that. And even to today, 60-some-odd of them are still alive in their 90s today. And the one common denominator to every one of them is what, you guessed it, healthy, life-giving relationships. Like, this is what adds value to our life. Like, why don't we have more of them? Well, we see it in the early part of Genesis. We see what happens. Adam and Eve are living there in the garden. Life is perfect. I mean, they have God as their friend. They have the entire universe uh, to take care of. And we know that Satan comes along and he tempts Adam and Eve. And they sin. They eat and they do something. God had, the one thing God had told them not to do, they do. And you wonder where your kids get it from, the one thing you say not to do. And they do because you did it when your parents told you not to do it. Our our forefathers did it. Adam and Eve did it. And when they did that, the relationship with God was broken. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says this. says, the eyes of both, meaning Adam and Eve, were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. And they made themselves loincloths. They hid. And they weren't just hiding what they'd done. They were hiding who they are. Right? They weren't just hiding the fact that they'd sinned and done something wrong. They were hiding who they were. And we have that tendency to. You know, we may not sew fig leaves together, but we're really good at wearing masks. Have you noticed this? Like mask wearing was popular way before COVID in our lives. And we learn it, I think, early in life. When we start out, Everything's grand, and we just live life as little kids. But somewhere along the way, by the time you're in middle school, you're just trying to figure it out. How can I not let people know who I am? And we hide our insecurity. We we don't want people to know. We don't think we fit in. And we hide our anxiety that seems to be strangling us. We hide our depression uh, that's like a cloud smothering us. And we hide the fact that we don't think we measure up, that we're not beautiful enough or cool enough. And we hide in a lot of ways. A lot of times we hide behind personality. You know the guy that always tells a joke? Not me, but somebody else you know. To kind of diffuse the moment so it doesn't get too serious. You know, you know the girl that just never talks? Just doesn't say anything because she's, she's hiding. And we hide behind success. Like what neighborhood we live in or what car we drive or what watch we wear or what clothes or what, where we go shopping or where we go out to eat. We hide behind success and we hide behind our pride. Some people hide behind their children. Like if my kids just do good, I'll be good. And all that, none of that has the ability. It doesn't have the strength to hold up under the weight of your life. And we're just hiding and we're just wearing masks so many times. We hide behind busyness. Anybody do that? Now, now the Hebrew word for friend is, is where we get, is related to the word for secret. And the whole idea of that in that particular worldview is that there's someone in our life who knows our secrets. Now, now, now I, I don't know that you need to sit down with some stranger and start sharing secrets, Okay. Like, if you were to walk up to me and say, you know, I spent the last 14 years in a Turkish prison. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's, that's good. I don't know. But there are some things that are going on in your life that nobody knows about. Man, some things, some struggles, and you feel alone in them. 
And that's why this word secret comes out. When we just begin to learn what it means to take our mask off and to live as just as he was, as Paul is writing, just live this genuine type life. Now, now Paul goes on to say, after brotherly love, he talks about this word honor. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, honor here is just, it, it literally means to put a price tag on. So he's saying we need to put a price tag on on people that they're always more valuable than we are. Now, generally what we do is we put a price tag on people based on what they can give us. Come on. Like we, we look at people as transactions. Like if you were to examine your field of friends today or acquaintances or however you would define that, most of them may come through work and they're customer-based and you can get something from them. And many times we kind of value people based on what they can give us and, and we view people as transaction. Like, you know what the best way to have friends? Is to buy a beach house. That's how you can have friends. Like, me and you will be like this, right? And some of you know what that's like. You have a beach house, and that's the only time you hear from certain people. And we look at people as transaction. But what Paul is saying, man, people aren't a transaction. Man, people are treasures. People are treasures. And we need to look at people not as transaction, but we need to look at people as the treasure of the kingdom, that God has put them in our life, that people are the treasure, that people are worth fighting for, that people are more valuable than we are. He says to outdo one another in showing honor. Um, man, relationships are intended to be life-giving. They're intended to be life-giving. So let me just ask you this question. Who values you enough who values you enough to make you better? Like as you think about people in your life, who values you enough? Who points out some of your blind spots? And let me just say this as a caveat to marriage. Like I hope that your spouse makes you better. Um, I think we all do. But you need people outside that who make you better, who breathe life into you, people who encourage you people that you could pick up the phone and call, like who in your life makes you better? Listen, relationships, being real, real friends create value in our life. Now, as we look down in verse 11, it says, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So don't be lazy is what he's saying. And he uses the word zeal, which just means to set on fire. And he says, serve the Lord. So, so here's another thing about real friends. Real friends create work. Come on. Real friends, they create work. One of the reasons, one of our values here at Stone Creek is that we value fight for relationship. Why? They're hard. Because people are dumb, you know? Like me included. Have you ever said or done anything dumb to a friend? Anybody? Raise your hand. Come on. Like everybody. If not, you just lied and you just heard me read that God hates liars. <laughs> so that's you. Oh. Man, we, we know, like, we do things we wish we wouldn't have done. We say things we wish we wouldn't have said. Man, we, we don't do things we wish we'd have done. We forget things we wish we wouldn't have forgotten. Man, we are that. We are those people. So they create work. Man, man relationships create works. So, so here's the thing. I just want you to think for a second about someone who brings you life, someone that you love being around, someone that when they call, you're like, that's the person. I want you Put that person, lock them in your mind. You may have to close your eyes so you're not looking at me. Lock them in your mind and think about when is the last time you talked to them? Like when's the last time you saw them? When's the last time you were present with them? When's the last time y'all got together or sent a text? Like how often was that? 
Listen, it, it requires a fight, and it requires planning. It requires planning. You know, we plan so much in our lives, you know, especially as you get to this time of year. And you get to, you know, the end of December as you move into a new year. We plan our finances. You know, we think about how much we need to save or earn or what's coming our way. We think about what our budget's going to be. We think about what we're going to put towards retirement. We think about, like, what trip we're going to take and are we going on vacation this year. We think about, like, what are we going to do in our house? What project are we going to undergo? Are we going to change houses this year? Are we going to get a different car? Like, we think through our finances, We think through recreation, how are we going to spend our free time? Because we have so much of that around here, right? (laughs) Like we think through these things. Like when's the last time you sat down at the beginning of the year and you thought, you know what? I need to learn how to be more encouraging. Who do I know that's an encourager? I'm going to hang out with them this year. Like I need to know, I need to be able to handle my finances better. Like who do I know that seems to handle finances? Like I want to hang out with them. You know, one of the things that, that uh, studies show is that, you know, you're the average of the five people you hang out with the most. You probably heard this. So if you want to make more money, hang out with more people who have more money than you, is what that study says. If you're the average, and it's not that they're going to give you money, but you just learn to think differently. You learn, you learn to, to, to think differently and process differently. When's the last time you just planned and said, this next year, here's the three things I want to work on in my life, and I'm going to hang out with people who are experts in that. Listen, these are things you have to decide ahead of time. Okay, decide ahead of time. And here's what you have to decide ahead of time. Because when someone tells you that you're going down a path of destruction or that you're doing something wrong or maybe they, they call you out on a little gossip or a little division, what are you naturally going to do? You, if you're like me, you're going to bow up, aren't you? You're going to get defensive unless you've decided ahead of time. Like if you've decided ahead of time that you're going to listen, they may be wrong, but at least you've considered it. Like happened to me today, like one of the people that I've decided ahead of time I'm going to listen to is my wife, okay? Like whatever she says, I'm going to listen to it. Now, some of you haven't done this yet, and you need to do it right now. Whenever your spouse says something to you, you can say, I'm going to listen to you. So if you're married, turn to your spouse now and say, I'm deciding. Wow, nobody wanted to do that. Say, I'm deciding. Now say, I'm deciding I'm always right. So you don't want to do that. So she, this morning, literally, she, she, I, said this, I said something we had a discussion. She says, hey, that word sounds like this. I don't ever, I, you should never use that word. Now, I've got two responses in that moment, don't I? One will prevent me from preaching today. <laughs> and one will be like, oh, you know, maybe it, maybe it did sound like that. Maybe I did say it that way. Maybe I don't need to say that again. And we need to decide ahead of time. Who do you have in your life that you've decided ahead of time? No matter what they say, right or wrong, you're going to listen. You're going to process. Who have you planned on? And it takes a plan and it takes effort. You know, another thing about us is that, um, man, we are so, so busy. So busy. And relationships require so, so much work. But we are so, so busy. You know, C.S. Lewis in uh, Screw Tape Letters, he said this. He said, as he's writing, it's a, it's a fable, and he says this. We can't keep the Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate, abiding relationship with Jesus. So let them go to church, have their lifestyles, but steal their time. Steal their time. And when we don't have time, we generally don't have time for other people where we don't have time. We get so, so busy. Listen, busyness, it isn't a statement about how important you are. It's a statement about who you worship. Like, let's say this again. 
Like it's being busy, it, it doesn't tell it doesn't tell anybody that you're really important. It just shows that who you worship. And you do do you know who it shows you worship? You. I worship me. I'm important. Me, mine. I'm the one. My time's more valuable. And we get so busy we miss out. And, and we just kind of fall in line with the culture. And you know what culture is delivering? Loneliness. Loneliness. Like Cigna recently did a study on this. So it says half of the people that they uh, surveyed report being alone or left out. Okay, alone. So you guys alone and left out. Okay, how does that feel? Some of you are like, it really, really does feel that way, right? So a quarter of you, a quarter rarely or never feel understood. That's you. You're the winning section. Look under your chair. There's a prize. Now, um, like a quarter of people feel like they're never understood. Okay, so that's this part of the room. Half of people have meaningful interactions on a daily basis. Winners, this half of the room. Like y'all win. Y'all get meaningful conversations at least once a day. Come on, Jake, you got it. Now, now, here's what loneliness does, okay? It raises the level of anxiety in your life exponentially. Okay, it causes insomnia, so you can't sleep. This is loneliness again. Raises your blood pressure more than a meal at the varsity. Come on. As good as that is, it increases your likelihood of a stroke. It causes weight gain. Hello. Like some of you turn the new year and you're like, I'm going to do keto or Atkins. You just need to get some friends. Uh, I'm, I just tell it like it is, right? No. It contributes to chronic pain. Like, check this out. Loneliness registers in your brain as pain. Pain. Increases your risk of early death by 30%. And maybe my favorite one. It has worse effects than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. A day. Like, like if you saw me out in public smoking a cigarette, you'd be like, huh. But if you saw me smoking 15, you'd be like, he wants to kill himself. <laughs> like, like th- th- listen, if you smoke, no judgment. You, you keep right on. That's between you and the Lord. Like, I, I don't even care. And, I, like, I even thought about bringing a cigarette up here. But I thought, that may be too harsh. Anybody got a cigarette you want to let me borrow? <laughs> I said no judgment. Um, but I think we just get this, the effects of this in our life are so devastating and sometimes we don't see it because every other relationship that we have in life it's kind of forced on us so if you think about maybe you were dating or married like let's be honest hormones had something to do with that okay there's something inside you like that looks good right there's something that was stirring inside you like when you move into a neighborhood it's kind of forced on you you get who you get now you can do some interviews before you get there but you don't really know your neighbors until you live next to them and your dog does something in their yard then you know them like, at work, you don't always get to pick the relationships that you have. But when it comes to friendship, it's not always forced on us. And we get to pick. We have to fight for it. It's going to require planning. It's going to require effort. Man, it's going to require intentionality. You know, and, and we, we all do friendship differently, men and women. Have you noticed this? Anybody else but me notice this? Like, men and women, we create friendships differently. Now, not to stereotype by any stretch of the imagination. I would never do that. Um, but men, like, what, what word characterizes our friendship? Action. Come on. Like, we want to do something together. We want to shoot something. We want to blow something up. We want to drive something fast. We want to watch somebody else doing it. I mean, that is how guys 
we develop relationship. And women are like, y'all don't even talk. Like, he, 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 like okay, I'm about to preach. So, so check this out. So, so check this out. Imagine this. Imagine this. Like, Doug, you call me. You're like, hey, man, let's just go and let's just talk. I just want to, I just haven't seen you in a while. Let's just go, let's just talk. Let's have some FaceTime. There is an unwritten guy rule that I'm going to get a pack of guys. We're going to beat him up because we don't do that. Right? I just want to talk. We don't just talk. It's just not what we do. Now, do we talk? Yes, we do. Between grunts, <laughs> we talk. But we do it in the context of what? Action, competition. That's how we do it. Now, ladies, completely different. Now, I'm not saying y'all don't like to shoot things, drive things fast, or blow things up. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, y'all will be like, hey, let's just, let's just go to coffee. Debbie will say, hey, I'm, I'm going to coffee. I'm like, oh, good. Well, like, where are you going? I'm not sure yet. Like, how long are you going to be? I don't know. It could be hours. Like, what are y'all going to do? We're just going to talk. What are you going to talk about? Oh, I don't know. Did you do something wrong and you're getting punished? That's what I want to know. Like, we just create friendships different. We just do. But we all need them. Come on. Man, we need people in our life. We need people who will make us better. We need people who will encourage us. Question, what work do you need to do to develop meaningful relationships? Like, what work do you need to do? What call do you need to make? What text do you need to send? What invitation do you need to offer? Like, what work do you need to do to develop meaningful relationships? Or if you have some, how do you need to fan that into flame? What does that look like to you today? Now, now the thing about friendships is you can't just walk up. You remember in kindergarten, you may do this, hey, would you be my best friend? You know, and some people try that when they're in adulthood. And let me just tell you, that ship has sailed. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just strange when that happens. However, if you're looking at your life and you're like, man, I don't have those people. I feel lonely. Um, I'm, I'm missing out. What you can do is while you can't ask somebody to be that person for you, you can be that person. Okay? You can be the person that has those character qualities. Paul, Paul lines out a handful of them right here, and I just want to teach through them some things that we could adopt. So the first one that Paul talks about in verse 12, he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Okay, see, he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Listen, hope is like oxygen. You cannot live without it. And there's probably people that you know that have walked the pathway of pain for too long by themselves. And they need somebody just to give them some hope. Man, it requires perseverance. It just requires this ability for somebody to come alongside and, t and tell me, hey, it may seem dark now, but joy comes in the morning. That you may not know where you're going now, but there's a place that God's going to come through for you. That right now, turmoil may look like it's going to have the best day over you, but it will not last. That God will show up and do something. And sometimes we need to hear that from another person in our lives. Man, sometimes we need to hear that. I feel like sometimes when we walk through life, we walk through like we're breathing out of a straw. Have you ever tried that? I haven't either, but it sounds hard. Um, and and it's, it's easier to do. It's easier to do when things are fine. But try jogging and breathing through a straw. And try running. And, man, when the pressure of life comes in on us, 
and we don't have someone to point us so that we can breathe in some hope, man, we are going to suffer. So we need to be people who bring hope. Listen, if you call this place home, you need to be a person of hope. People should know when you tell them, I'm coming over, hey, let's, let's have some coffee, let's have some lunch, let's go blow something up, they should know. When that guy, that, that lady, she goes to Stone Creek, they're going to bring me some hope. They're going to bring me some hope. Paul says, rejoice in hope. Then he goes on to say this. He says, be constant in prayer. He says, be constant in prayer. And I think we know that we should pray for each other, that we should need prayer from other people. But I wonder how many times we ever break below the surface. Like, you've been in prayer meetings. Some of you, maybe if you are in church culture, you kind of get it. Hey, i got a big meeting this week. Could you pray for that? Hey, I've got a prayer request. It's unspoken. You know that one? It was actually spoken. <laughs> you just didn't say what it was. And we have so, a, a very elementary, rudimentary version of prayer. Maybe you ever had somebody pray for you when you just went like, man, I'm suffering from some anxiety today. I just need you to just, man, will you just pray for me? Hey, my marriage is on the rocks and nobody knows that it looks great. Would you pray for us? Like how many men in the room have ever had sat across from somebody while they prayed for you? They prayed for your future. They prayed for your soul. And they prayed for your heart. They prayed that you would uh, be the person God's created you to be. Like when has that happened for you? Like we want to be the kind of church that prays for people. And I realize, man, that, that's stepping a boundary. That's stepping over a boundary that most people aren't willing to cross. But could it be? Could it be that the reason why the church in the United States is declining it's because we won't step over it and just ask God to get involved in our individual lives, right? So we need to be constant in prayer. Man, if someone comes to your mind, you should pray for them, and then you should text them you're praying for them. You know, you should ask people if you can pray for them. I've never had anybody decline on me, ever. Now, there was this one time a guy declined before I could ask him. He found out I was a pastor. He said, yeah, the last time I played golf with a pastor, he wanted to pray before the round. I ain't doing that. Note taken. But people will accept prayer, and it also communicates something about you. And it just invites God. He says, be constant in prayer. Then he uses this word, forgive. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. I mean, this is just countercultural, this idea of generosity. And that we would give. And when Paul writes this about the needs of the saints, he's talking specifically about giving to your local church. This is what Paul is talking about. Now, listen, you know you are a better person when you give. You know this about yourself. When, you're, when you give, when you're generous, whether it's financially, whether it's your words, whether it's your time, whether it's your attention, whatever it is, you know that that's the pathway for you to have some satisfaction. Most people, I don't know of anybody that you give and you walk away like, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Man, that was a waste. Hate that. Wish I could get that back. Now, we do that in other areas, but giving is not one of them. And so I would just encourage you, if you're not someone who gives to this local church, can I just tell you what's going on in this place? Have you experienced it today? Like a lot of times what uh, pastors will do, and, I'll, and I'm guilty of this too, is when you talk about giving, you don't want anybody to criticize you for it and you come across as like, it's for me. Like, it, you know, I, I want you to give because it benefits me. And so what we'll say is this. Hey, you don't have to give here. Just give somewhere. Nah, don't give somewhere. Give here. 
This place is making it happen. Man, the people that go here are passionate about seeing lives change. Man, they're running after marriages to see them restored. Man, we're doing something where we're training up kids to be the next Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We're training up kids to be the next church leaders. We're training up the kids to be the next kingdom expansion. Man, they are the hope of the church. I don't know why you wouldn't give here. Like, I don't know why. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Then he says this. Practice hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. Now, now Martha Stewart kind of wrecked hospitality for a lot of people. Um, and we think that hospitality is just this idea of entertaining. Love Martha. She's a fellow smoker. Um, <laughs> um, I don't even know if she is. But she hangs out with Snoop Dogg. She's smoking something, right? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, so just this idea of hospitality. Man, we all have places that we live Come back to me. <laughs> I got carried away, Jeff. Man, we all have places that we live that people should, should step into. Like there's nothing that will take a mask off faster than having someone sit around your table, than have someone be in your environment. And, and we live in a very affluent area. We live in an area where people have some nice houses. And I wonder how it goes when, you know, when you, when you kind of become an empty nester and you have all this empty space and you're not using it for anything. And I wonder how that goes with the Lord when he's like, hey, remember that basement you enjoyed with your children and then they left and you stayed there for 20 years? What did you do? I watched the Super Bowl by myself. I, I think that we have such an opportunity. I think hospitality is the new frontier when it comes to reaching our communities and reaching our world, that having people in our homes to sit and to eat and to have some serious conversations over some food, that's going to be an area that we can actually have people in our homes and God will do something in our own lives to strengthen us and encourage us and build us up. Like we also have a leadership development program. We have young leaders come in from around the country and we need host homes for places to stay. And maybe that's you. And so you can get with me later or one of our staff team. We, we would love to help you use your home for ministry. Um, but we have an opportunity in the homes that we have. Paul says this in verse 15. He says, rejoice with those that rejoice. Don't you, don't you need people that would just cheer with you? Do you ever have something good happen and you're not sure who to call? Because you may come across as you're bragging. Like, I want to tell them, but, man, I, I feel like I got blessed more than they did. And I don't, wanna, I don't want them to feel bad. But then you got people you call. You just know they're going to celebrate. And you can just call and tell them good news. Like, like some people you can call and tell bad news to, but man, it's a true friend you can call and tell good news to. Amen? Man, people who would just celebrate and rejoice with you, people who don't care that they didn't get what you got, people who don't care that they wanted what you got but didn't get it, and that they would still celebrate with you. Man, we've tried to do this in our family. I remember when uh, my oldest son he got his nursing degree, and he passed his boards. And so his girlfriend was over, and so they were in the basement. And so I went down, and I just celebrated with them as best I could. I did the victory dance for them. My, my, my son was so embarrassed. He was mortified. But his girlfriend said, oh, that's so cute. Um, you mean show you the victory dance? Yeah. No, no, no. I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> Note to self. Uh, the victory dance. You need to come up with your own victory dance and celebrate with people. So Friday night, this was cool. Friday night, it's, kind of, it's later, later than I'm normally up, later than my kids would ever call me. And so on the, on the, uh, on the family text, um, we get this FaceTime call. Um, it's for everybody on the family, and we're all dialing in, right? And my son had gotten engaged Friday night. Let's go. 
Smile at the sun. So what did we do? We just celebrated, even FaceTime-wise, you know? I mean, we just celebrated. We just had a blast. Man, we just need people like that in our life. You need to be that for somebody. And we just rejoice with those who rejoice. Ah, but what about that next one? Weep with those that weep. Ooh, mourn with those who mourn. Sometimes, man, we, we don't know what to say or what to do. Because there's nothing to say and because there's nothing to do other than just show up. Because there's enough pain in this room to sink the Titanic. You've been through some stuff. You've walked some painful roads. And you've been in some deep darkness. Didn't know how are you going to get out? And some of you are still there. And you need somebody not to come along and fix your problem, man, but just acknowledge that it's painful and it mattered. Someone who would avoid all the Christian cliches and coffee mug sayings and just be there to weep with those who weep. Hey, this is what Jesus came to do. This is who Jesus is. And when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus did what he gathered 12 around him. And he gathered some people around him. He didn't come just to be the lone ranger. Jesus had some friends around him. And we are most like God when we are in relationship with other people. Like we are most like God because that's what Jesus did. Jesus had the 12, but then he had the three. He had three who were really close to him. And so as the story goes, Jesus is on his way to be executed. He knows it's coming the very next day. So he goes away to pray and he brings three of his followers with him. And he knows. Jesus knows. Jesus showed up for you. Jesus knows the regrets that you have. He knows the shame that you carry. And Jesus knows. And it says he will never leave you or forsake you. And this is the story that we have. And this is the person that we follow. This is the founder of our faith. And his name is Jesus. Hey, let me close with a story about <clears throat> two friends that uh, have changed the world in a lot of different ways. One of them is a guy named C.S. Lewis. Now, some of you have maybe heard of C.S. Lewis. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, he also wrote one of the great apologetic works, Mere Christianity. He wrote A Grief Observed, um, uh, The Weight of Glory. He wrote Screw Tape Letters and The Great Divorce. He just he is prolific in his writing. Well, C.S. Lewis, one of his great friends was a guy named J.R. Tolkien. You guys may know that name. You know, Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings uh, and The Hobbit to go along with it, but nobody really cares about that because Lord of the Rings is so epic. Now, now, Lewis and Tolkien actually met when they were professors in Oxford. Lewis was an avowed atheist at that point. And Tolkien and he met. Here's what, here's what Lewis, said about, um, Lewis said about meeting Tolkien for the first time. He says his first impression was unfavorable. In his diary, Lewis described Tolkien as smooth, pale, fluent little chap. No harm in him. He only needs a smack or so. <laughs> this is how Lewis described him. But they began to meet together, and they formed a group of friends that they called the Inklings. And these guys met together every week for 17 years. And they met to encourage each other, to challenge each other. They meant to bounce ideas off of each other. And Lewis was instrumental in Tolkien actually finishing 
the Lord of the Rings. It says that without his persistent encouragement, Tolkien would never have completed the Lord of the Rings. Now, just to talk about the power of their friendship, their works combined were translated into 39 different languages. Their works sold over 300 million copies, their written works. And as we know, some of them were optioned into movies that earned $6.5 billion. This is the power of that friendship. But it has even more worth than that. Because because of Tolkien's own Catholic faith, he spearheaded Lewis's conversion from a stomp atheist to one of the world's most famous Christian writers and speakers. Listen, and Tolkien didn't do it by sharing his Catholic catechism. Tolkien didn't do it by just hammering Lewis with the logic of why it makes sense to follow God. Man, Tolkien did it through just his presence in the life of C.S. Lewis on a daily basis. To breathe life into him. Man, to show him the way forward. To share with him everything that Jesus had done. And eventually, Lewis came to Christ. And as we know, his impact is immeasurable in the lives of people like you and the lives of people like me. Let me ask you this. Who... Who's your Lewis? And who have you had influence on that's following Jesus? Who have you breathed hope into or encouragement? Man, man, who is the recipient of your generosity? And who have you talked off the ledge or corrected their course of action? Like, who is your Lewis? Listen, if you don't have someone that you can look at, it is not too late. Today's day one. Today you can get started. Who Who is your Lewis? Listen, we're all created for impact. We are most like God when we impact other people. And we can't let our culture steal this from us. Man, we have the words of life. There's somebody you know, man, that somebody God's put in your life this week. And he he wants you to influence this week. But maybe for you, you're just lonely today. Maybe you're the one I described, and when I made the joke about this half of the room, you're like, no, I'm over here, but that hurts. I'm just reminded. I'm lonely in my marriage. I'm lonely in my neighbors. I'm lonely in a crowd. I'm just lonely. Maybe the step for you today is just to recapture some of what the enemy has stolen. Man, God wants you to not sense that. Man, he wants to be someone who comes beside you and with you and shepherds you through life. So what I want to do I just want to take a minute to pray. And then we're going to have an opportunity to pray uh, for other people. Um, But first, I just want to take an opportunity to pray so that God could just step into a little bit of what may be stirring in your heart this morning. So let's bow our heads and let's pray together. And just with our heads bowed and eyes closed, as you think about it, you you realize you've never made that decision to follow Jesus. Man, you have never taken a step. Um, You've always just played church and maybe even gone to group and read your Bible. Be like, ah, it's just a category of my life. But you just find yourself at a crossroads today. And I just want to help you. I want to help you go forward. And so the way that we do that is just praying and committing our lives to follow God.